tune in, tone up. Your one-stop shop for guitar tricks, tips, techniques and advice. With me, Gary Shilliday, and my own excellent teacher, Dan Davis. In Guitar Lesson 32, Dan and I take a look at some general ideas which you can take from David Gilmour's playing. He plays with such meaning and purpose and the most incredible tone, and yet what he plays is not usually technically too difficult. Using a style backing track, Dan and I look at how Gilmour uses dynamics, phrasing, bending, vibrato, and intelligent note choices connected to the chords which he plays over. Gary, you and I have been chatting about uh, what to do today. We've covered so many different topics, and I hope people out there have found them interesting. I think our numbers of listeners that we can see are listening to our stuff hopefully reflects the fact that we're giving people what they're looking for. I had a thought regarding today. There's a name which pops up with monotonous regularity in the guitar world and often pops up in circles that you would least expect it. Who's that, Dan? That would be... Dave Gilmore. Oh, Dave Gilmore. From blues guys to hardened metalers, everyone loves Dave. Yeah, Dave's the man. He is. So what I wanted to delve into was a little bit of Dave Gilmore's style, but also what makes it tick? Why is it that his style is so popular? What does he do that others just don't do that that makes the style and that sort of type of guitar playing work. Any thoughts? Penny for your thoughts, sir? Um, great tone. Great yeah. tone is a starting point. You know, he sort of uh, holds a note, he sustains a note, and uh, just as you hear it decaying, he, he might hit the next one. He's got a few little bits that he does like that. He's great at choosing chord tones and following a theme. His music has a lot of space in it,
I think that, that, that's sort of true of the whole sustain thing as well. He's not one to fire hundreds of notes at you. His notes hang in the air. They're thick and mean something. Presence. They've got they've got presence. We, we were talking about his solo last time, his solo from On the Turning Away, mm. and I said that opening note just hits you like a 10-ton truck, and it's so true. I personally think, you know, he, he just has some great openers. Yeah for solos and he he follows that theme through but the irony is although Pink Floyd's music is rich and multi-layered it's interesting it's not simplistic the guitar playing that is so revered which is used over the top of it is rarely overcomplexed. it's rarely particularly as you say noty or over technical or anything like that. Now, there's room for all of those other sorts of playing, that's for sure. But what I think Dave Gilmore encompasses, which is why he's so popular amongst guitar players of hugely different genres, is he picks the good stuff, and he delivers a message with economy. Mm. You know, one yeah. one could say that, you know, maybe us guys who, who like to shred it up a little bit, you know... Is it that we can't quite <laughs> deliver on that level? I don't know. Or is it that we like to do some of the other things? And maybe it's a little bit of both. I'm not sure. But to sustain an entire career for 40 years or more on really, for the most part, you know, the minor pentatonic scale and to have so many classic solos connected with such a straightforward style is really interesting. Mm. It's about economy, really, in terms of what he's got to say and how he decides to put it across to be the most effective. He's a very intelligent player as well, I think. Seems to have, there seems to be something about it. I know a lot of that's kind of Roger Waters' production and, you know, his the way that he goes about things, but I think David Gilmore brings a certain intelligence to his solos that and forethought. Mm. It makes you just feel like it is the way it must be. It couldn't be changed. Sometimes. I think, I think when somebody plays with a real particular style, I mean, Brian May is another one. You know, can you imagine another guitar player being in Queen? No. It's, it's <laughs> just 
bullying, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just Very unfair. Completely on... wrong. He suits that sort of majestic kind of vibe that Queen had, and all of that is built into his guitar solos. Yeah. And they stand as pieces, for the most part, in their own right, on their own. With Dave Gilmore, he's got an emotional connect with the tracks. And I think this is the thing that we can learn, is he, he reels his audience in, not by playing lots, but by playing the best of the simple stuff. And sometimes maybe just using one note in a minor pentatonic that differs or adding an additional note to make it really tick. Yeah. So what we're going to do, just to warm up and get jiggy with it, we've got here a Pink Floyd-style backing track. A minor, C, F, D minor, A minor. It's not any particular Pink Floyd track, and I've done that on purpose because I don't want this to become a heavy Dave Gilmore-style file. Yeah. What I want us to do is look at Dave Gilmore's style, maybe look at some of the things that we can get from it, and look at how we can use that in our own playing. Yeah, fantastic. So shall we have a little bit of a a play around with this backing track to start Perfect. So we're going to play over this track, a little bit of lick trading, you play a lick, I play a lick. Who do you want to go first? Me. Over to you, Dan. (laughs) Me again. Okay, so what are we getting at? What we're not doing is copying exactly a Dave Gilmore solo or singling out a particular solo. There's so many good ones to pick. If you can read tab, if you're in a position to be able to follow this with the bending and the vibrato, you can probably look on Google and look for plenty of guitar tabs that are going to work for you. Yeah. No problem. What we're seeing here really is, is what we can get out of the Gilmore style. What makes it tick? What is it that maybe could benefit our own playing? Yeah. So what's the first thing, after jamming over a track like that, it's kind of Floyd-esque, what's the first thing you're noticing using very basic pentatonic notes? So think about where you're bending from and to. Some uh, long bends with good sustain, some strong dynamics, and I think he brings it down quite a lot and then raises it back up. Dynamics are all important and leaving enough space to don't feel you've got to fill every waking moment with a sound coming from your guitar. If you want to leave it for a bar or two and then come in with maybe a note at a more poignant moment, this is quite possible. It's very effective with a slow track as well because you don't want that kind of, especially with a slow track, you don't want that kind of unstoppable freight train kind of feeling about it. 
whereby you just feel you've got to, you know, fill every waking moment with some kind of guitar lick. And so giving the track space is always a good idea in that regard, you know, sort of wait and then place the lick in a good place. A lot of good players who rely on their melody more than anything else do this thing where they don't fill every waking minute with something. And sometimes that makes us uncomfortable when we're not playing. They want to fill the whole track with guitar, especially when it comes to their solo. And certainly there are some solos which work quite well like that. With a longer, more drawn-out thing, you can use that space and that waiting time to reel your audience in. You know, even playing over a blues, you can leave a little space in between some of the licks. Yeah, yeah, that makes good sense. You know, because that way you give the audience a chance to absorb what you've just played. Seems like a regular thing in his phrasing is to have these kind of long, wailing bends, followed by a kind of another long, wailing bend, and then maybe a pentatonic, quick fill down, descending fill or, or something. He often does the the pattern kind of. Yeah, like those sequences type. Yeah, Yeah. that's going down in three. So we're just in the first position of the A minor scale. can sort of angle that any way you choose what i was choosing to do as well which is quite effective i think over this track is i was sometimes swapping my c for a b yeah so you get this pattern oh yeah okay so you're kind of focusing on the uh, ninth of the minor yeah, yeah. so i'm adding the ninth it adds a nice flavour. Yeah, okay. Probably particularly in the top notes I was doing that, maybe, yeah. So there you were bending up. So I was bending from the 17. Strings. That's it. And then finally down on the ninth fret of the D. So. 
So we've got this starting with the bend. Sometimes feel players look for things in the wrong places. You know? Yeah. If I had a quid for every time I made a player who's got a nice feel and all the rest of it and they've gone, Oh, show me these other scales You've got to remember <laughs> Just add a note, yeah, type thing. You know, you know yeah. scales are not the be all and end all. They're a means to an end. They're not the end in itself. If you yeah. find the scales like, like when you get beginners who go show me all the strumming patterns. And it's almost yeah. like they've got it in their head that if they learn 200 strumming patterns, they're, well, they're Bob Dylan then, aren't they? <laughs> and it doesn't work quite as simply as that. I wish music could be put into mm. such simple little sort of one, two, three, four, five boxes. But it doesn't work like that. Learning a scale, you've got to ask yourself, well, what's my reason for learning the scale? Well, obviously, if it's a scale that's kind of highly used in a lot of the music you play or music that's around, like the major scale, the minor scale, the major and minor pentatonic, maybe a handful of the modes. Yeah. You know, all of those are fair game and absolutely useful, but none of them on their own will um, resurrect abysmal pain. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you can get a minor pentatonic and make it sound good, then's a good time to start expanding maybe to some extra notes. If you're after new sounds and you don't want to lose the feel, because this is the other thing, is where we've got all our nice sort of pentatonic shapes laid out for us, which we sort of know and love. If we then go and mess that up by having to learn a whole new pattern, we're back to square one. Yeah, you've lost... Well, you're trying to make sentences without realising you've already got the vocabulary type thing, I suppose. Well, yeah, like you, you've lost the flow because your hands are so used to doing the minor pentatonic yeah. thing. Whereas slipping in an extra note or taking a note out and substituting it for something else, yeah. to me, is a much more economic way. And we are talking about Dave Gilmore. We're talking about economy. Yeah, yeah. So it's a much more economic way of getting a slightly different sound out of your scale. You know, if you were playing over a 12-bar blues and you were playing a minor pentatonic, you could learn a bunch of modes or something and that would definitely be useful to you. But it might also be as good a start as to just include the major sixth. So in the key of A, that would be the F sharp. So instead of going E to G, you go E, F sharp, G. Dorian type thing. Yeah, you do a Dorian flavour without necessarily learning the entire Dorian mode. Yeah, okay. And all of a sudden, you've got something else you can use. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of worth because very rarely do I sort of think of it in terms of notes. I often think of it in terms of patterns, which is I, I I kind of know the notes, but then I don't think of it like that often. But it's worth just sort of 
singling out, if you're going to be sitting down and working with a backing track for a while, kind of worth singling out those notes, isn't it? Going F sharp, that's the major sixth. And yeah, yeah. Work, work out with those wider gaps of three mm. frets, like between the E and the G, which note, the F or the F sharp, sounds the best. Yeah. Between the A and the C, which note sounds the best, B or B flat. You choose. Yeah, yeah. You decide. But it's a really easy way of expanding what you already know. Yeah. You know, I, I found with scales, when I started learning scales, you talk about sort of learning the notes in scales. Once I, I started to kind of do longer runs and things, the thing that I noticed was that I, I could never seem to end on the right note. And then I realized, well, a way forward would be to end on the, on the root note of the chord that I'm playing over at the end of the run. So if I'm landing on a C, you know, for a C chord, that's all going to work. Of course, the next step on was knowing what the notes major were. Major thirds. And in, yeah, so like if it's C major, it's going to be C, E and G. If it's C minor, it's C, E flat and G. And knowing that those are all fair game, and then deciding out of the extra four notes in the scale, in the minor or major scale, what one of those notes yields maybe a sound that I'm looking for. And so what happens is your, your scales and everything take on a new lease of life because you're thinking in note terms and you're connecting mm. them to chords. Now, this is one thing Dave must be so good at. Yeah. playing to what he's playing over yeah now it may be a, an almost a sort of a knee-jerk reaction like i hear it i play it i know for me i don't always over intellectualize things and you don't have to over intellectualize things to get the best from them but no. you've got to have a little bit of knowledge of you know the fact that you're targeting something for a reason mm. so when you're playing over a certain chord are you taking account of that so when we go from a minor to c you could play the same old thing, or you could acknowledge that the change has been made. Yeah. So if you're playing an E, which would be quite an innocent fifth note of A minor over the A minor, when you change to the C, that becomes the major third, so it becomes quite an important pivotal note, mm. and so on. So stay on that E, let that E ring out over the change. Let it ring out, go up to it, you know, so yeah. you're making a point of it. One of the biggest problems that people have when they start soloing is their concentrating on so many different things they're not listening to what they're soloing over yeah so yeah, absolutely you know, they right, could be yeah. soloing over 
My Old Man's a Dustman. Yeah. Or one by Metallica. It doesn't really matter. The music yeah. stops and they carry on. <laughs> See, as long as the music's going, they carry on like the Duracell bunny. And then when it stops, oh, why we stop? <laughs> or just carry on and forget about the music. <laughs> so you've got to listen. Yeah. You know, it's why it's always preferable. You know, if you were doing a session and you had to pull a solo out of the bag, it would be preferable to either write down or have written down for you the chords in the progression so that you could connect your solo better to what's going on underneath. And in a pentatonic way, it's not that difficult. Mm. You know, it's not mm. that difficult. You know, the notes are laid out. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, really. If you can't make the notes of the minor pentatonic fit what you're playing over when everything works together, and you probably want to be taking up knitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. <clears throat> Maybe leave the guitar to people who can hear things. <laughs> Golf, <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> Golf is good. Golf works. Go and buy yourself a pair of Rupert the Bear pants. <laughs> but it's that thing of listening and yeah. being aware of what you're playing over. And as you said earlier, dynamics. Now, if you listen to Dave Gilmore's playing, often he'll actually go from one position to like the one an octave down or an octave up, you know, he'll make quite big jumps. Yeah. He doesn't sort of do what I do, where I sort of clamber up the neck. You know, that's my way of playing. I play often in quite a diagonal way across yeah. the guitar. I saw you like sliding down perhaps a fifth, maybe even a sixth or something. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's good to be able to do that with enough confidence to hit the right note at the bottom. Well, I think with Dave Gilmore, he's probably got, although he's going to make it sound the way he wants he's over the years probably honed it down and he's got a few patterns in different keys that he know works and they work for him and so that's what he uses it's not to say the other notes aren't fair game but sometimes in the familiar patterns like the first position things are laid out in quite a user-friendly fashion and so people often stick to that and they might swing between the upper and lower octaves you know, so they'll, they'll have a, a lick down here. And then they want to play something higher. They'll go straight up there and not really take account of... The bit in between. That's it. It's just a different way of playing. That's all, that's all it is. Also, Dave Gilmore often uses the rich bass notes. Now, when we solo, sometimes the bass notes, I think, get a bit of a poor rap. Yeah. You know, the bass notes I've heard Brad Paisley use quite a lot of low notes to great effect. Dave Gilmore uses them all the time. You've only got to hear the beginning of Sorrow to hear those real, you know... guitar sound yeah it's something to be embraced and used and abused so you're like on the uh bridge pickup with all everything up isn't it crank it up
that's my backing track. <laughs> so much difference between the frequencies that you've kind of almost got two different instruments uh, or two different voices. Well, so we so often don't use discussion. that, that growly yeah. low end unless we're playing chords. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Know, often yeah. we'll play chords, but we, we won't always think melodically or we'll play riffs down there. Yeah. But it's one of those places that you can go because other people don't go there. Yeah. I guess in some ways... You know, you can play those bass notes with a bit of um, a bit of um, palm muting to take out that um, that kind of guttural sound as well. Or you, you can could, stick you the guttural could, sound. You could in there. mute them. It might end up sounding a little bit metal, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, or, or just throw it out there loud and proud. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You know, and let, and let it let it sort of do its thing. But there's a lot of dynamics just in what we discussed. There, a lot of different ways of. There, there are, I mean, you, you can again, you can use, and we talked about this many times, but engage your volume control on the guitar if you're using a, an overdriven sound to peel it back or let it rip. Yeah, you know, if a song is kind of softening out a little bit, you probably don't want to be ripping through it. No. Whereas if a song is going for it, then you have every right to wind it up, sir, and go for it. Yeah. Let it fly. But you. Know, Thus far, we've got let's have a little recap. So we've got the sort of guttural low-down notes, which often get missed. They're worth kind of putting into solos because they really kind of growl. You know, they growl with a sort of a you know a kind of emotive. It's like majesty. a majesty. It's like a motorbike almost, isn't it? It's like an engine. Yeah, yeah it's got that real uh, gritty, gravelly. Yeah. So they're well worth exploring. Yeah, even if you don't use them all the time, you don't always have to spend every hour up the dusty end. The other thing is rolling back and, and rolling on. So mm. if a song's going for it, feel free to open the taps, but be sensitive to what you're playing over. If that song is a bit more peeled back or the band have chilled out a little bit, then you should maybe peel back too. Otherwise, it's going to sound really badly mismatched. They're holding back and you're roaring through like an unstoppable freight train. No good. Yeah. You've got to work together. There is no I in team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, fair yeah. play. Well put. So, so when it comes to a band, you want to move together like one complete machine. Yes, so you've got to listen. Yeah. That's it. Listening to the chords you're playing over, that's another thing you can do. And as you say, when it comes to tone, maybe experiment a little bit. You know, you can experiment with different effects. 
these days, you know, you can buy packages for your computer for next to nothing with different effects if you want to kind of experiment before you go and lash 90 quid on a pedal or something. Mm. You know, you listen to Dave Gilmore, sometimes he uses flangers, sometimes there's choruses. Frequently, on some of his cleaner parts, he uses a Dynacomp, an MXR Dynacomp. So it's a compressor. compressor. So it plumps out the sound, and it also makes it sustain and react more like an overdriven sound. So you get more sustain, much more sustain, much more fatness. It works very well as well on partially driven sounds that wouldn't sustain like that, but where you don't want the full levels of gain to be up. You know, you yeah. want them to be a bit more calmed down. Use of delays and things which are atmospheric, such as reverbs as well, if you're taking into account the sort of Dave Gilmore thing. Because there's this thing with, with Dave Gilmore where he's kind of a little bit timeless. Yeah. It's almost like his sound, as he plays with Pink Floyd, was nothing to do really with the blues. Yeah. He may have a Strat and all the rest of it, but I mean, he used an awful lot of different effects in different combinations. on his guitar as well which not many people may know but he had a special set of EMG pickups made for him and he had an, an SPC knob which was a spatial expander powered, powered pickups always powered yeah so the guitar he used especially through the 80s or late 80s was I believe a, a USA 57 reissue in Candy Apple Red 
But he then got EMGs loaded into it and an SPC, which is a, called a spatial expander. Which like is a, a phaser, isn't it? I think it just expands the range of the pickups. Right, okay. So, you know, you, although you may be sort of totting some good old single coils, this will allow them to do so much more. Yeah. You know, so he, his approach... Clever to, stuff, yeah. Yeah, his approach to sound and approach to tone is very unblues. But his approach to playing is quite the opposite. And sometimes it's it's quite interesting. He almost uses all of those different, more spatial sounds to take that bluesy playing and make it fit in the backdrop of something that much more extravagant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so like, I guess you're saying like those kind of bluesy feels, those pentatonic bluesy feels. Yeah, I mean, they, they would be at home in a 12-bar, wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, if you, if you gave them a sort of a rocking 12-bar and Dave played his usual stuff over it, you wouldn't go, oh, that sounds terribly out of place. No, that's right, yeah. But his sound is the thing that he changes almost to yeah. sort of partially accommodate some of this more flamboyant, psychedelic Pink Floyd style. You say about his playing being timeless, he's pretty timeless himself, isn't he? I mean, he almost looks younger now in some ways than he did. Like, he's a bit of an back, institution, yeah. is Dave Buell, yeah. that's for sure. But it, it's that usage, you know, when you break it down, there's nothing really but simplicity. So, you know, you could happily pull off the Dave Gilmore style by knowing just a handful of scale positions. He plays low down or play the octave up and there'll be something maybe going on in the middle. Yeah. You know, but he often goes from one position, as we said earlier, straight to a, a brand new position, you know, if that's what he wants. Yeah, you can hear it on the solo on, on the turning away where he clearly starts in the 12th fret, first position of E minor. And then goes right down the bottom to the open position. Yeah, open strings, that's something to... Not just the low strings, but all of those open strings there. They have a certain different different resonance in some way, don't they? They do. I mean, obviously, depending on the key that you're working in, mm. that's going to make a, a difference to how many of you, those you can you can feasibly use. So what else can we say? Any questions? So there were a couple of big slides down from... Uh, 
Those kind of slides, are they quite a big feature of his playing? I think he tends <laughs> to use, as I say, sort of maybe several positions. So here we've got the fifth fret, position of A. <laughs> up at the 17 and then I've got some notes sort of between the 15 and the 10 So actually, yeah, there's some questions straight away as well, because like the bending is such a big part of what he's doing, really, isn't it? It's, it's all bends uh, and vibrato, and that's a for me. I mean, people tend to just bosh out the bends, bosh out the bends, <laughs> but it's actually quite an advanced technique, isn't it? And I remember you doing some solos with only bending and things like that, and that's something worth looking at again, I think, for me, at some stage. I think bending, the, as well is good. the first thing with bending is to remember is the, the accuracy factor is probably number one. Yeah. So I tend to use my ring finger in front, my third finger, with the second and first fingers behind. <laughs> If I can't avoid it, and I have to bend with my first finger, well, so be it. Yeah. Usually you can avoid it. Several mistakes people make, putting your little finger up front. The little finger's really short. So if you try and kind of bend, although you've got four fingers down, it always feels weird with the little finger. Yeah, it's not really got much of a tone to it, has it, really? It just doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, and you're going to soon run out of, of how far you can push that bend up realistically. So getting hold of that note, making sure you can feel the neck behind your hand, because really pinning the, the string to the board, that's priority yeah. when it comes to, to the bending. <laughs> So when you're whizzing around, dropping the thumb down and extending your fingers is is paramount to kind of getting the dexterity going, but it's the opposite of what you want when you're bending. Yeah. So when you're bending, hold the thing like a cricket bat. Yeah. Hoik the thumb over the top if you want to. Use the neck as a lever. Push against all you have to. So if you're... And listen as well. Listen. Yeah. A good exercise to do is go up the C major scale in bends. Yeah. So start start, start, on, start on the so I would start on the fifth fret of the G. So a string that's more akin to bending. Yeah. We go from C to D. D to E. Right. E to F. F to G. G to A. B B to C yeah. 
Stop there. I would start. You want to keep it all in the key of C. Ah. And try a, a B string, same thing. And so on. Yeah, nice. But you get the feel on each string for how far you've got to push. Yeah, that's a really good exercise. Yeah. It is a good exercise. Yeah, and, and nice you know, one. There's lots of different things out there, like you can get strings which are called balanced tension. Yeah. And they're supposed to feel the same across the board. Yeah. If that helps you out, then great. I wasn't so keen when I tried them, I must admit. They, I thought they sent my guitar out of tune. Get a bit used to something, don't you, I suppose, as well? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of dialed into my good old-fashioned 10 to 46s, and so yeah. I, they ain't going anywhere. But, you know, if you want to try things like that, certainly feel free to do so. That'll help with getting the basic intonation of bending down. Yeah. You could use the same example using a slide if you wanted to get that sort of intonation down. Yeah, okay. You know, once you've got that, it's then maybe going to specific pitches. So try going to maybe a whole tone. And then adding on top of that a semitone. So I'm on the 10th fret of the B. Okay. Oh. Yeah. It's a good exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things need to be looked at consistently. I do think bending is quite an advanced technique, and I don't think people necessarily always realise that. I, I mean, I think I, I definitely do because I'm playing and I'm like, oh, I'm not quite happy with that. I'm not quite happy with that. I think sometimes when people get the idea of bending, yeah. they can bend, but it's a bit like, there you go, yeah. I've done a bend. I've sometimes written out bends for kids. Yeah. Like if I'm teaching kids and they're, they're old enough kids, they're in their teens. And you're teaching them some licks and stuff. And you might have a bend like this. So it's got to reach the root yeah. at the end. And the first one's got to go from D to E. Hard, isn't it? <laughs> to get it accurate yeah. and to get it fast enough so it all hangs together. Yep. But they'll either kind of make a bit of a, a mess of it, you know, like that, or they'll, you know, where they overcook it, or they'll undercook it. But yeah. that's yeah. not what I wrote. <laughs> yeah. 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 You've got to make sure your, your bends are going to pitch. <laughs> Sweet. Did, did I did I tell you my uh, recording experience? I'm sorry if this bored everyone to tears out there, but you know. When I was about 19 or 18, 19, I worked in a music shop and they were kind enough to lend stuff out. And one day they lent me this Tascam four track tape recorder because that's how we recorded back then, folks. <laughs> Before the PCs came along. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you bought your chromium 90 minute tape. 
Yeah. And the, you know, BASF. That's it. And the, <laughs> and the whole width of the tape we used, so you, you got 45 minutes recording, not 90. I recorded some stuff and I listened back and I thought, oh, that's all right, but the vibrato, cool, oh dear, that's not good. And when I heard my nasty nanny go vibrato, I decided that it had to be sorted and tackled. Yeah. So when you were talking about bending and vibrato, which we sort of put in the same kind of pot, when you're vibratoing, I was having this out actually with somebody this morning I was teaching, we were talking about this. When you bend and vibrato, so you bent the note, <laughs> now we're going to vibrato. <laughs> There's your target. You bent up to the right note. So you've then got to drop the string, bring it back up to pitch. Drop the string, bring it back up to pitch. Yeah. That's how you get the vibrato right. <laughs> if you want to sound like a nasty nanny goat Kirk Hammett vibrato, <laughs> you get it up to pitch and then you push the note. Mentioning no names. <laughs> no names, Kirk. Um, yeah. Then you get it up to pitch, then you push it past pitch and then start warbling it. And it sounds crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, don't mm. get it up to pitch and then push it. Get it up to pitch and let it drop. Now, when you're vibratoing on a static note, it's different. Because when you're vibratoing on a static note, the string as is, just sitting there, that's its zero point. So when you vibrato, you're actually pulling it sharp. You're doing the opposite. Yeah. So when you bend, the string's under tension... You're letting it down in pitch, up in pitch, down in pitch, up in pitch. Yeah. When you're on a static note, yeah, you're I'm pushing it up that. in pitch and then coming back to the zero point. Yeah. I mean, I realise I'm doing that, but I hadn't thought about it. Probably. So if so you, that should be nanigating it, really, shouldn't it? But it doesn't. If you Sorry. push, if you pushed it outside of that, like. Oh yeah, yeah. It would sound mean. awful because you you so really pushed of that it quarter, sharp. Or whatever it is, eighth. The string has to come bend. back to its natural point. It's got to come back to its zero point. Yeah. The point that it would be in if you just struck the string and let it ring. Yeah. So that being the case, if you push it sharp and then start warbling it by pushing it sharp again and back again, sharp again and back again, you're coming back not to the zero point but to the sharpened point. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, if you're bending and you bend it and then you bend it sharp and then you warble, you're doing the same thing. You're warbling, but back up to the sharpened point, not back to the actual zero point that the string needs to be in to be in tune. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. People have the same problem with trem systems. Massive problem with trem systems. They hold on to the trem bar. And put it up and... Well, you can put it up and all the rest of it, but if you hold on to the trem bar, you're like never going to get back to the... Like a handbag yeah. snatch victim. You're going to get this. <laughs> You're going to get that. If you want to do up movement, that's fine, but you've got to then let the trem settle. It's got to be purposeful. So I'm letting it settle. <laughs> If you hold on to it tightly, you know, even if you're being as gentle as you possibly can. 
it's really hard not to kind of send it out of tune. Yeah. In some capacity. So if you are vibratoing, then and if what matters is you're going back to the, the static point. That's it. If you're doing that, does it matter how far you bend and then go back to the static point? Is it about the speed? Of, do you see what I mean? So, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to hit the other string a bit too much, but like if I was to go... Because it's coming back, and it's coming back and there's still a reasonable space of time... It sort of works. Still. You know, a great example of that is John Sykes playing on a lot of the White Snake 87 yeah. album. He does a lot of these, you know, gets this massive big sound with his Les Paul and does that kind of vibrato. Yeah. And it just sounds absolutely humongous. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. really helpful. But give those things a go. Yeah, we'll do. Thanks. And yeah. folks out there, you know, give them a try. It wasn't exactly, and wasn't meant to be a Gilmore style file. Yes, using that as a springboard point for us. Thank you very much, Dan. No problem. Stay tuned for more episodes, jams, improvisation ideas and well-informed thoughts about amps, pedals and guitar tone. If you enjoy this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, find us on SoundCloud or see our website on tunein-toneup.com. Here you'll find show notes, tabs and further research and resources. It's also a good place to get in touch. We hope you're finding these lessons as interesting and as useful as I do, and if you have any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Yeah.